Well, good morning, young disciples. It's great to see you again. You're probably wondering where Pebbles is. Well, she's back home. But I have a question for you today. You've got to think about this and be honest. Have you ever been angry at someone else? How did you feel inside? Uh huh. Is it a good feeling when you're angry? No, it, it's it it sort of hurts in your heart, doesn't it? It's like a beast in your body. Yeah, yeah. Anger is a really powerful thing. Well, t- today you heard as Ash read the passage. We're going to talk about how does God deal with anger. And there's, uh, there's a wonderful word that's a long word. It's the word reconciliation. It means when you make up. It's, it's when you get over your anger and you embrace the person that you're angry with. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's why we need God's help. It's why we need the Holy Spirit to enter into that heart and get rid of the beasties, right? And it's the only way. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. It doesn't say anger is a sin. It's just that when you let it sit in there for a few days, it can become a sin. But even when we sin, what do we do? We go to God and say, please forgive me and give me the strength to be reconciled with the person I'm angry with. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for these young disciples, and thank you that you give us your spirit to help us when we get angry. And thank you that you, even, even when our anger is in us for a while, that you are powerful and you can take it away by the power of your spirit. So we pray that you would do that in our lives and in the lives of these young disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, you can head on to your Sunday school classes, and I'm going to stand up. (laughs) Well, while the young disciples are headed out, uh, I'm going to, I have a pastoral announcement to make. And it's a pastoral announcement because it's, you know, it's, it could cause some controversy. Now, if you were watching the announcements as they went right by, you notice Ash skipped right over this, and they gave it to me. And that's because this September, we're going to, as part of our regathering plan, we are going to go to two morning services, one at 9, traditional, and one at 10.30, contemporary. Now, when I say those words, traditional and contemporary, It's not going to be just the way we always did it. That's all in the past. But it will be traditional and it will be contemporary. We are in the process working with session and staff at a a whole redesign of our Sunday morning experience. And part of it is that we would truly worship God in spirit and in truth. And part of it is we want to be welcoming to people in our community and beyond to come and join us for worship, whether it's online or in person. And so having two services gives us more room as we 
welcome people in, and it also gives us the chance to experiment. So this fall, in each service, we will be trying some things, and we will be asking for your feedback, and then by January, we'll go back into normal, permanent, two-service worship. Whatever we discover together is really going to help us worship God in spirit and in truth. So that's the plan, and stay tuned for more announcements as we get closer to September 19th when this new Sunday morning schedule goes into effect. Well, last week in those opening verses of chapter 10, which are really famous verses, they're verses that have been preached on for generations, and they were, as I mentioned last week, Uh, The first ten verses of Ephesians are central to the Reformation period, to Luther's and Calvin and the other Reformers' understanding of what it means to be saved by faith, to be justified by faith. So in those verses, Paul explained how God began to fulfill His plan to reclaim and redeem creation itself, to rescue humanity from sin and evil. And now in the second half of chapter 2, Paul gives to the church part 2 of God's comprehensive rescue plan. Now to understand what Paul is teaching, we have to first remember God's original intention in creation, that the entire world was to be his temple, a temple where God could dwell with us. God could be united in fellowship with people, the incarnate God dwelling with us. And after Adam and Eve's fall, God didn't give up on that plan. He called Abraham and Sarah, and he told them not only would they be blessed with a son, not just so they could have a family of their own, but remember the promise, through Isaac, you will be a blessing to the nations, not just to your own tribe and your own nation, but to all the nations of the earth. Now, Israel kept falling over and over and never really fulfilled this original call to Abraham and Sarah. God wasn't thwarted by our disobedience. God is patient and determined. God has a plan to deal with the divisions that break humanity apart and keep us separated from God. It begins with the incarnation. God sent Jesus to earth to usher in his kingdom, and that inbreaking kingdom of God will one day include, Revelation tells us, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus' life was a witness to this kingdom. His death was decisive. In his own body, Paul says, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility, not only between God and people, but between Jew and Gentile. And as I said, last week we looked at how how that gospel message rescues and redeems us individually with our God. But God wants to do more than reconcile you and me. He wants to reconcile us to one another, and He wants to reconcile all people. 
Now looking back, it's really hard to understand why it took so long for people to get that the kingdom of God was meant for everyone, that it would include not just Jewish people, but Gentile people as well. But this, is a, this was a really big problem. To understand how radical this idea was, we should get a quick picture of how deep the anger, the enmity, the estrangement was between Jew and Gentile. William Barclay wrote these words. The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentile said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations he had made. Until Jesus came, the Gentiles were objects of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Any contact with a Gentile brought huge penalties, and a marriage between them was the equivalent of death. But this was not Jesus' intention. In fact, when he came to earth in the flesh, he would make trips back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. Look at the, uh, the slide. He even went to Tyre and Sidon, bringing the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. He would heal the sick and cast out demons on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and then he would do it on the Gentile side. Remember there was the feeding of the 5,000? That's the one we read about, and, and we have pictures for the children's sermons and all that, but he also fed the 4,000. That was for the Gentiles. But his earthly ministry only reached a small number of the Gentiles. He entrusted the church to bring the gospel to Gentiles. He gave the church the great commission to preach the gospel to all nations. That word nation is the Greek word ethnos, all ethnic groups. Gentile and Jew. Remember in Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch, the gospel was for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. God knew this was going to be challenging. So in Acts 9, remember he appeared to Paul in a vision and he commissioned Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul had the dual challenge of connecting with Gentile outsiders, but he had to deal with this deep hatred that his fellow Jews had for Gentiles. This was deeply ingrained, even in the church. So Paul needed some divine assistance. Step one came in the chapter right after Paul's call, chapter 10 of Acts. I encourage you to read it. And it came through two men. First, Cornelius. Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile. He had already come near to God. He was a man of honor, a man of courage, a man that Jewish people could trust. So he was a perfect reconciler for this to happen. And God gave him a vision, and all God spoke to, to, in that vision to Cornelius was this. Make your home ready because a man is coming from Joppa he didn't tell him too many details so he wouldn't freak out. 
But that man was Peter. And Cornelius was told to welcome Peter into his home. That was really the easy part. Peter also got a vision, but his vision was far more elaborate. It had to deal with his deeply ingrained anger and hostility toward Gentiles, his deeply ingrained prejudice. It was an elaborate vision where he saw this vision of all these unclean animals, and God told him, I've created all these animals. Nothing that I have created can be called unclean. Peter, kill and eat. Imagine what was going on in Peter's heart and mind. Now, should it, that should have been enough, right? God spoke to Peter, Cornelius and Peter reconciled, and so no problem. It took years for Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus to begin to work out what it meant to be one body. Finally, in Acts 15, at the very first church council, the subject was all theology, of course, but not like when they wrote the Nicene Creed. The big subject was how will Gentiles be included in the kingdom of God? And they hammered it out. Uh, you remember Paul and Peter had to have a big argument. It's recorded for us in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul confronted Peter to his face. This was after Peter's vision of, and after his encounter with Cornelius. So it took time for these deeply ingrained patterns of hostility to be broken down. Now, by the time Paul writes Ephesians about 62 A.D., these matters had been resolved by the church council, but Paul wants to, in a comprehensive way, explain the inclusion of Jew and Gentile, the breaking down of the wall between them, was part of God, the unveiling of the mystery of God's plan from all along. So let's look at the details of that chapter. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, this is a little bit of an echo of the first 10 verses. Both halves of Ephesians chapter 2 begin with the life or a description of life without Jesus. We were dead in our sins, that's, chapter, that's the first half of the chapter, and we were separated from God. In both halves, there is this great reversal that starts with the word but. In, chapter, in verse 13, it's but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul tells us that the Gentiles had a much more serious problem than lack of circumcision. He says they were separate from Christ. They were excluded from citizenship in the people of God in Israel. Foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, those who were far away are brought near by the blood of Christ. It, Paul is, in the back of his mind, is this understanding of the temple of God. And let's look at a, a slide of that temple. Now, 
you can Google Herod's temple. There's lots of these uh, pictures of it. But it, all you have to look at is you can see the middle building right in the middle of the, with the big courtyards all around it. That was the temple with the Holy of Holies. Only Jews could go in there. And all around it was the court of the Gentiles. So God had a plan when he instructed Solomon on building the temple that Gentiles could be there. And they, they didn't go very often. Could you, can you imagine why if Jews had this attitude toward them? But it was designed so that they could draw near. And there are all these wonderful, even Old Testament passages that lay out these promises to the Gentiles. But remember what happened when Jesus went to the temple? He was angry because in the court of the Gentiles, they had set up tables for the money changers, all designed for the convenience of the Jewish worshipers. So they wouldn't have to travel with their sacrifices. They could just purchase a dove or whatever and offer it as a sacrifice. So the very place that was supposed to be for the Gentiles had been taken over. There was no room in the temple of God. Jesus, Paul says, broke down the wall of hostility. That's what, he's, that's what Paul is talking about. The wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. Now, let's look at Paul's, how Paul continues. For he himself, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. You remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but he set aside the, the ceremonial law, all those commands, 500 and some commands that were there just to separate people. They were add-ons. They were not part of the original Ten Commandments. Jesus sets aside in his flesh that ceremonial law because his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, shalom, peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And keep going. For he came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him, through Christ, we both have access to the Father through one spirit. Now, deep divisions like the ones Paul is addressing here have existed between, not only between Jew and Gentile, but between tribes of people throughout history. I remember back in 1983 when Carrie and I made our first, quote, missions trip to Kenya, and we spent the summer there, seven weeks, and we learned a ton. We were there ostensibly to help the Kenyan church, but they taught us so much more than we could have taught them. But one of the challenges in Kenya and in Africa in general is that they have, to this day, deep, deep animosity between different tribes. And so we saw that close up. We would go into the home of a kukuyu, and they would 
we would be welcomed in and they treated us like royalty and so on. But they would sort of let slip, well, we don't like the Luos or the Luyas. And as you got to know them, it was more than we don't like. Centuries old hostilities were there. Uh, we have a word for this, the balkanization of the human race. Why is that? Well, go to the Balkans and look at the, the ancient animosities. The Hatfields and the McCoys are maybe a famous example of this deep hostility between people. And it's, it's blood. It's blood feuds. That's how deep the hostility was between Jew and Gentile. And it causes a lot of problems, a lot of pain. From the beginning of time, people have asked the prophet Habakkuk's question, how long, O Lord, must I cry for help but you will not hear, or cry to thee violence and you will not save? And it's only just and right that people should ask, how can there be a God and how can God be good when the world is so messed up, and part of why it's messed up is that we're at odds with each other. We are having blood feuds with each other. Paul says God understands this. God grieves at the brokenness of the world, and God purposes in his heart to reclaim the world and to be the God who reconciles people to one another through reconciling first people to himself. He doesn't leave this work to anyone else. He takes it on himself, Paul says. And the staggering claim of the incarnation revealed to Paul and proclaimed through scriptures is that God himself came to earth, suffered an injustice so absolute, submitted himself to evil powers, which not only conspired against him, but tortured him and gave him the death of a common criminal. O sacred head, once wounded. God, in the second person of the Trinity, utterly emptied himself, even to death on the cross. But then God raised Jesus from the dead, exalted him as cosmic Lord. His death and resurrection are the defeat of death, of evil. In those, God heard the cry of his suffering people, he heard the cries of Jews and Gentiles, and he struck a fatal blow against the powers of evil that were separating human beings from one another. And God is acting not only out of deep compassion for the brokenness of his world, but he's acting to defend his honor. He is the God who is the God who brings people together. He's taking back creation from the powers of evil and restoring it so that all might live and flourish. Reconciliation between people who are estranged and alienated from God and each other is at the very heart of God's plan. Galatians 3.28, Paul gives an opening hint years before of what this looks like. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor there is, is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is writing at a time when the Roman Empire had pacified most of the known world, but, it, but the Roman Empire did it by walling people off from each other. 
and, and keeping them, not, not even hoping or expecting for reconciliation. But in Paul's mind, he sees citizenship not the way the Romans do, but citizenship between people who are at, at odds with one another. The kingdom of Jesus, Paul says, is far more splendid and enduring than any earthly empire. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's God's new society of reconciled people. As he goes on, he starts talking about other metaphors, the household of God, the family of God. God is our Father, and all of us are His children through the blood of Jesus. We can be reconciled with our long-lost and estranged brothers and sisters. Now, we often say we're, we want God's will. We want to know it, and if we only we knew it, we would do it. But we don't have to wonder what God's will is for reconciliation. It's so clear. It's part of His plan from the beginning, and it's part of His plan all the way through to the very end. He's made it as clear as possible. If, it's, if we want to please God, if we are truly serious about following Jesus, doing His will, this is it. This is what gladdens the heart of God. Finding unity with one another. Forgiving one another. Asking God to help break down the walls of hostility in our own hearts so that we can be truly reconciled. All right, let's finish our passage this morning. Paul has gone through step by step to explain what Christ has done to bring near to God and His people, Gentiles who were previously far off. He's abolished the law of commandments and created a single new humanity. And now in the concluding verses of chapter 2, we see the results. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners. You Gentiles are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of His household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. You see, Paul's vision of the church, of the body of Christ, is not only one of citizenship in God's kingdom and membership in God's household, but it's being part of God's temple. Part of the, it's a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. That temple that Herod rebuilt had for nearly a thousand years been the focal point of Israel's identity as the people of God. Paul is saying now there's a new people who are not just a new individual nation, but a new worldwide international humanity. One temple in Jerusalem was not enough. In fact, that temple was destroyed eight years after Paul wrote this. We need an international temple, Paul says. And Paul's spirit-inspired vision is of a new temple, one that the Roman army can't destroy, one that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, built on Holy Scripture itself with the chief cornerstone being the risen Jesus. And each stone in the temple 
are us, individual believers of every time and place, of every nation, of every tribe, of every tongue. Paul says the purpose of the temple is to become a dwelling in which God himself lives. God is not tied to holy buildings, but to holy people, to his own family, his own household of faith. This is a challenging word because we have a long way to go to realize what God has already begun to accomplish. We're called to fully embrace and celebrate our new identity in Christ, to walk in good works that God has prepared for us. But we have to go beyond the joy of our own individual salvation. Jesus said, take up your cross daily. Cultivate communities of restoration and reconciliation wherever there has been alienation, bitterness, and division. And as we do that work of being deeply reconciled with each other, we're not going to be uniform in our ideas or our opinions about how to live out our discipleship, but by God's grace and power, we can be unified in our fellowship as we love across our deepest differences. Jeremiah Burroughs was an English minister who lived for 46 short years in a very turbulent and very divisive time where Catholics and Protestants were killing each other in England. But Burroughs believed that it's possible to be not uniform in our ideas, but essentially to disagree agreeably, to, to fight out our battles through reason and argument, not with swords and, and pistols. Burroughs said what we've got to do. Ultimately, the church must strive every day to become a thoroughly cross-shaped community, to embody in our own behavior the love, humility, and patience of God. In their book, uh, Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference, Tim Keller and John Inazu write these words in their introduction. We also wanted to explore how Christians might embody humility, patience, and tolerance. We believe these embodied practices are fully consistent with a gospel witness in a deeply divided age. In fact, they not only make space for the gospel, but also point to the three virtues of faith, hope, and love. This is an amazing book, and I recommend it to you, maybe for your common space groups or in your own discipleship, because it points the way to applying Ephesians 2 today in the very real world of division that we live in. We have an opportunity at Grace Commons to live out our vision for Boulder with Love. This church could be a demonstration project showing how we can love each other in spite of our deepest differences and live in peace with one another.
Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking like the disciples were in Mark 10. They had just heard Jesus teach about being reconciled to one another, about marriage and other relationships where things can really get really bad. And they start talking about among themselves after Jesus teaches them what it means to take up your cross daily and the complex challenges of human relationship. And this is what Mark says about their conversation. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. In 1979, John Stott wrote in his Ephesians commentary these prophetic words. I wonder if anything is more urgent today than that the church should be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it already is, a single new humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and each other, the evident dwelling place of God by his spirit. Only then will God receive the glory due to his name. Friends, God wants to do a work in us. We have to invite him in. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are people that need your salvation, and we need your sanctifying Holy Spirit in our lives. Go deeply into us. Help us to love one another, even when we have been estranged. Across our deepest differences, help us do it relying on the power of your Holy Spirit, trusting in your mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.